Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Executive Pastor Dr. Tucker York. I invite you to turn with me in the scriptures to Colossians chapter 1. We'll be covering 15, verses 15 through 20 as we continue on in our Colossians series. Throughout church history, most heresies were falsehoods regarding the person or the work of Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1, like John chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 1, unequivocally declared Jesus as the eternal Son of God, as the co-creator of all the universe, and as the only redeemer of mankind. Our passage emphasizes his preeminence over all things created and all things redeemed by his work on the cross. And in our verses, we also find comfort in the midst of a crazy world, to be reminded that all things hold together through Jesus Christ, our Lord of glory. Please follow as I read. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent." For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Father, this evening I would ask that the words of my mouth, that the meditations of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I suppose you've had the experience when you've known somebody for a long time and then you met his or her son or daughter and you just see the striking resemblance. I remember years ago having lunch with Corey Thudium, a man in our church who at the time was a college student. And as I sat with him, I thought I could close my eyes and imagine it was his father speaking to me, just the cadence of his words, the way he spoke, uh, the colloquial nature of his language. And, you know, when we go to family reunions, when we meet old friends from high school or family or college or so forth, you know, we, we joke about how you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And when it comes to you know, the analogy of human generation— Jesus comes bearing the likeness of his Father. Now note that in Scripture, there is never a physical description of Jesus at all. 
But rather, Jesus tells his hearers, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. So in, you know, in our world of, of commonalities and family relationships, the, the relationship of father and son is like a father and son business. And Jesus represents his father and his life and his ministry on earth. But the, the striking resemblance we find is in his character, in his righteousness. Repeatedly, Jesus says he has come to do his father's will. In Colossians 1, Paul makes clear the identity and purpose of Jesus, the Christ. He is the eternal Son of God, the co-creator of the universe and the redeemer of God's people. Our passage begins with the phrase, Christ is the image of the invisible God. Paul uses this terminology which would likely have clashed greatly with Jewish beliefs, belief in the God who is unseen, and to make any kind of image of God is idolatrous and blasphemous, breaking of the second commandment. Of course, man was made in the image of God in creation, but for man to make God or make an image of God is both sinful and blasphemous. But God has the prerogative to make an image of himself. It's clear to us in this passage and in Christ's life on earth that that Jesus' body, his body from the moment of conception and creation in the womb of his mother was created, which goes on to help us to understand the remaining words of our verse. But the essence of the Son of God as the second member of the Trinity is an eternal spirit without any confines of the physical, of a physical created body. Yes, man was made in the image of God. But now the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes to represent God in a way that mere man was incapable of imaging. Jesus reflects the holy righteousness of the living God. As we read in Hebrews 1, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus also is the firstborn over all of creation. He is not created in his essence as the Arian heretics from the early church supposed. Jesus, though born as a man to some 2,000 years ago, preexisted. As Jesus declared to his opponents, before Abraham was, I am. And as he says in his high priestly prayer of John 17, Jesus prayed, and now, Father, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And as John opens his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of the world." The mystery 
and the miracle of the Incarnation is that the Son of God, the eternal Word, wed together the divine nature with sinless human nature. He did not have natural descent from his parents. The imputation of Adam's sin did not apply to him as it has and afflicted the rest of humanity. Jesus is the sinless, perfect human, fully human, at which point the Holy Spirit overshadowed his mother, and yet fully, fully divine from before the creation of the world. Verse 19 goes on to say that for in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now how a human body and a human brain can contain the fullness of God is a great mystery and a testament to God's wisdom and power. God knew from the very beginning that when he made man in his own image, that one day the eternal Son would come to dwell with man, would come and tabernacle among us. The Old Testament repeatedly tells us that the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and filled the temple. And so we have this idea here that, that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That everything true about God's holiness and righteousness, his justice, his mercy, his love, his wisdom, and his power were true in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's clear from verse 15 that this can't mean what the Arians say, the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, who deny the person in the cross of Christ, who failed to embrace the full divine nature of the Lord Jesus. It was the Son's pleasure to take up human flesh, to come and dwell among us. It was not a drag. It was not a dirty errand. It, he didn't bemoan his Father's will when sent on the greatest rescue mission the world has ever seen. It was the Son's pleasure, his joy to come and do the will of the one who sent him. Hebrews 12, 2 goes on to say that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. His was a glorious vision, a glorious mission. He fulfilled it not begrudgingly, not with misgivings or resentment, but unfettered joy, delighting to be born man, to live under the righteous requirements of the law, to fulfill every purpose of righteousness, to endure the persecutions of wicked men, and to drink to the dregs the full wrath of Almighty God so that we, his people, might be delivered, forgiven, and join him and stand before the throne of God in holy, spotless righteousness forever and ever. He is the eternal Son of God. He also is the creator of the universe. For by him and through him and for him all things were made. Prepositions matter. When Paul says all things were created by him and through him and for him, we, we capture the, the fullness of Christ as the creator, the co-creator with the Father of all the universe. By him, 
the Son, as co-creator with the Father in the creation of the world. A few weeks ago, Pastor Walker attributed the personified wisdom in Proverbs chapter 8. It's none other than the Lord Jesus. When Proverbs says, Then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, always rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. And through him, through whom he also created the world. The focal point of God's creative wisdom to bring the world into existence was the Son. As a father delights to build a dollhouse for his daughter or a treehouse for his son, and even with his son, as a, as a father and son undertake a car restoration project and delight, as the father delights in working with the son to restore something of beauty. So we capture something of the beauty and the wonder of the father seeking to make the world through and for his son for the display of his own glory. And it was for him, for Christ, a reminder that our world has a purpose not for its own pleasure, but for the joy of the sun. It is as though the world were the, the great theater stage upon which the sun might put on display the glory and wonder of his God and Father and the power and his wisdom manifest to all the observing angels and men to behold the grandeur of God and worship and magnify him with all honor and blessing and glory forever and ever. And in creation, he made all things in heaven, that which above the surface of the earth, the solar system, the galaxies, the whole universe, and everything on earth, the dwelling place of man, all of life and all that's necessary for man's sustenance and flourishing, that we might pursue our quest and knowledge and dominion over the created world. God is invisible to us, not created, not bound by the forces of nature. And the world is made of things both visible and invisible. There are a host of things that the eyes can see, and there are many things that we cannot see, particles and electromagnetic spectrums that can only be detected by tools and instruments that aid our limited human vision. The reference here to the thrones and dominions and rulers reminded the small and vulnerable church in Paul's day, who felt the full weight of bullying power of a government, government authorities, and men of standing who could easily put them to death by a mere word, that all these powers in the world are infinitely small compared to the great and might of the power of God. And that difference in power between man and God in scientific terms is like the difference between the strong force and gravity. If you recall from your science classes back in grade school, there are four known forces in the universe. The strong force inside the nucleus of an atom and gravity. We think of gravity as a powerful force, right? Gravity is what keeps the planets in orbit. 
Gravity is what keeps us from floating in outer space. But gravity is one times 10 to the 39th power weaker than the strong force inside the nucleus of an atom. And it is an unimaginable magnitude of difference. It's something right from the world of science that illustrates the difference between the power of Almighty God and the very, very limited powers of man. Our believing friends in China suffer under the hands of a government obsessed with control and universal surveillance. Their leaders are determined, even if it wrecks their economy and plummets the standard of living of most peoples, determined to control its population and bring the the church into submission. But they, like us, have the promises of Scripture. That though Satan might threaten the bride of Christ, the gates of hell shall never prevail against the kingdom of God, whose dominion will have no end. In verse 17, it says that he is before all things. The Son existed before creation. He is not created. He's before all things chronologically and in terms of priority. In verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. Christ's relationship to creation and the church is one of supremacy and ultimate authority and lordship. And in him all things hold together. Science has made great strides in the last century or so to understand the universe. The four fundamental forces of the universe, the strong and the weak, the electromagnetic and gravity. And in their quest, there is still a a search for the theory of everything. The theory that reconciles all the forces and helps us understand general general relativity and special relativity. I'm sure that more discoveries will be made in our lifetime and as the Lord tarries. But for now, may be sufficient to understand that it's God that holds the universe together. That it's the will of the Lord Almighty that has preserved and sustains a universe by which all the atoms and all the molecules obey the purposes of the Lord so that his people might flourish and might know him. And that the story and drama of redemption might be carried on to its fulfillment. And until that day, where the the whole creation groans in agony as it longs and waits for its redemption, will one day be transformed, be purified of all remnants of sin, be changed into a new heavens and a new earth, where God and all the host of the saints will dwell together in perfect peace and harmony forever and ever. And for many whose world may feel like it's falling apart by sin, corruption, a world of debauchery and confusion, of hatred and strife, it's comforting to know that we have a mighty and a personal creator God who upholds all things, who preserves all things even when all the forces of the world seem to be tugging in rebellion against God's good order. And if your world is chaotic with sin and oppression, doubt, fear, anxieties, and uncertainties, if you are in Christ, 
Be assured that you are held by a strong hand, that your name is written upon the palms of his hands, that he sees you, knows you, hears your cries and promises to deliver you, to never leave you nor forsake you and to bring you safely home to his eternal dwelling place, far removed from all evil and tragedy in this life, to live with him in joyful fellowship in the company of the saints, washed and purified by the blood of the Lamb. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. Of course, Paul repeatedly uses the body image of Christ and the church, the head being the source, the authority, the church being subject to Christ as Lord. The head, of course, governs and directs the church and her mission on earth. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. The Son of God is the trailblazer, the one who has opened up a new and living way into access to the Father's presence. By rising from the dead, Jesus has conquered the reigning power of sin and vanquished death, our eternal foe. Jesus is the first and the only person to rise from the dead with a resurrection body. Yes, there are are other occasions in Scripture where people were raised. Elijah and Elisha were both noted for raising the dead. Even Jesus raised Lazarus, Jairus' daughter, the widow's son. But each of these raisings might be called resuscitations. They were not raised to indestructible bodies. Each one of these individuals died again and wait like the rest of us until that final resurrection when we will hear the trumpet sound and be raised with glorious bodies never to experience decay or death ever again. And the Jews in Jesus' day believed in resurrection, but it was for the future, it was for the end of the age And during Jesus' life and ministry, his hearers could not fathom that resurrection could take place now, in this age, before the final judgment of the world. And Jesus repeatedly told his disciples that he would indeed suffer in the hands of wicked men, be crucified, put to death, be buried, and rise on the third day. And yet his followers could not comprehend what he was trying to say. They dismissed it. And after his prophetic words were fulfilled, and against their very worst fears, he was arrested and tried under a mock trial, tortured, nailed to a cross, where they watched him die to their utter despair and misery over the coming days until the glorious truth stared them in the face and forced them to come to terms with the new reality. That their Lord was not dead, but alive. And he was not just alive to prolong a few more decades before dying again, but he had risen to everlasting life with an imperishable body. And with that imperishable body, Jesus said that he could not remain, but must return to the Father and send the Holy Spirit to lead his followers into all truth.
And so in this story of redemption, Paul says Christ is preeminent. Even now he is at the Father's right hand, where the Son intercedes for you and I as he awaits the vast mission that he commissioned the church to be completed at which he will return in glory to judge the living and the dead. His is the preeminence in all things, who has been highly exalted and given the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father and through him to reconcile to himself all things. John Lennon said that all you need is love. But what people really need is reconciliation. In our church and many organizations, we use reconciliation procedures to make sure our financial records balance and match the bank's records. And that's true in the sense of our spiritual bank accounts need to be reconciled and made right with God to fill what is lacking to cover our deficits, and to fill up in us the very merits of Christ's righteousness. But here Paul is referring to a restored relationship. You and I were once alienated from God, condemned by sin, the very objects of wrath awaiting destruction. But in Christ, you and I are now objects of mercy recipients of his grace, adopted children of God with all the rights and privileges of access to his throne that the Son has made available to us, making peace by the blood of his cross. Our reconciliation with God is possible because of the blood of the cross of Christ, declaring that the war is over. We are now at peace with God. The dividing wall of hostility had been demolished. The curtain is torn in two. By his blood, you and I are washed and purified for our sins. Before the modern age, nearly every culture in the world, every tribe, every people group practice some kind of sacrifice. Blood sacrifice, animal sacrifice, sadly human sacrifice. In order to appease the gods, pagan peoples, Throughout the world, before the sophistication of modern science, understood that there was something wrong with the world, that human nature was deeply flawed, that our actions and our attitudes were a great offense to the gods. And so blood sacrifice and offerings were needed to appease, to assuage the wrath of God, to gain his favor, to bring rain and crops and protection and fertility and so forth. We understand that by the blood shed on his cross that Jesus fulfilled what all the sacrifices of bulls and goats and rams could never do in the thousand plus years of temple worship by the Israelite people. The temple system of the Jews was practice, a, a dramatic anticipation until the real deal arrived. As our father Abraham was ordered to sacrifice his son Isaac at Mount Moriah. So we see in that drama the foreshadowing of the father sacrificing his son. 
when the real thing came in the flesh to make a final sacrifice for sins, an all-sufficient sacrifice for every saint, covering every sin past, present, and future. Jesus Christ is the image of the living God, the eternal Son of God, the co-creator and the redeemer of all things. Worship him. Know him. Serve him. And when your world feels crazy and out of control, remember that if you are in him by faith, all things hold together. And hold on, hold fast to that truth. As one of our missionaries is fond of writing at the end of each of his letters, I hold on firmly because I am firmly held. To God be the glory. Our gracious God and Father, we are grateful for this glorious truth that we have in your Son, not only the creator of the world, but the redeemer of our souls, one who has reconciled us to you. We glorify and we magnify the Lord Jesus. May you strengthen us in him as we hold fast to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.